Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, a podcast where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations. I'm Yolanda Rodriguez. And I'm Jillian Davis. Keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at the Pemberley. And you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. Welcome everyone to a very special episode of the Pemberley Podcast, where this week we will be interviewing the director and producer of Mr. Malcolm's List, Emma Holly Jones. For as long as we've had this podcast, we have been anticipating this movie, so it is finally coming out in theaters July 1st. The logline for Mr. Malcolm's List is, in 19th century England, jilted by London's most eligible bachelor, Julia convinces her friend to play the role of his ideal match. Soon, Mr. Malcolm wonders whether he's found the perfect woman or the perfect hoax. My dearest Selina, will you come visit me in London? I promise you will be well entertained. I need your assistance. There is a gentleman, Mr. Malcolm. He humiliated me. No. I then found out he had a list. You have a list of qualifications for a bride. I would love for Mr. Malcolm to receive the comeuppance he deserves. Plus, it could be rather fun. If we present you as the perfect woman, then he discovers he does not meet the requirements on your list. That would be a perfect sort of poetic justice. You and I have discussed in the past that the plot reminds us a lot of John Tucker Must Die, which is a really funny rom-com that came out in the early 2000s. And in fact, we had a great conversation with Emma about our shared love of 90s rom-coms. And you and I have had many conversations about 90s and early 2000s rom-coms. So it was really great to hear her unpack her vision for the film, both in the diverse casting where she was inspired by the cast of Hamilton to really take this film to the next level with the actors that she cast. It was just so great to hear her talk about how it all came together. And what's impressive is this is Emma's directorial debut. This is her first movie and already she's coming out with a bang. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful story. The amount of detail and care she took into this, like you can only just imagine how she's going to carry that into her future films, which already we're excited for what comes next. But for now, you can watch and enjoy Mr. Malcolm's List in theaters on July 1st. Without further ado, here's our interview with director and producer Emma Holly Jones. We just want to say we saw the movie. We absolutely love the movie. But I'm super glad that you guys have actually got got to see it. That's super exciting because you yeah. really have been on the journey since day one. So did it live up to the uh, expectation of the short? That's the yes. first question. It did. Yes, very much it so. It did. We were, we were really excited. And I mean, that's pretty much our first question. I heard of Mr. Malcolm's List on the exact same podcast that you did. I was literally a senior in college and I was just like trying to like feel like I was a part of the industry. You heard the exact same script that I did. What was so special about this script that made you want to direct it and really like push it uphill like you have? That's amazing that you, you know, you heard the podcast as well so I think what you you would also be able to agree with is that there were some really wonderful actors performing those roles I think you know when you hear something like that like you really have a space for your imagination to sort of run wild you know I think the thing that struck me the most and I've been you know talking about this a lot as you can imagine the last two days was I was not necessarily looking to make a period 
film or something Regency driven, what I was looking for was that 90s rom-com quality. And that's what I felt in Suzanne's material was I felt that lightness and that romance and that laughter. It just happened to be set in 1818. That was the thing that drew me to this initially. And then, you know, it has to be said, like, I don't think I could have made this film without being a huge fan of the genre. But for me, that meant all sorts of time periods. I just love period movies. I love the magic of them. I love the escapism of them. I love the scale of them. It was a really joyful process as a filmmaker to get to sort of learn, research, read, visit museums, talk to historians, talk to, you know, different sort of scholars about a time period that I was plucking and picking and choosing bits and things to add to the little Malcolm's world we were making. I never set out to make 1818 England. I set out to make Malcolm's list as its own world and its own living and breathing thing. I think the best way I can describe that is like when you watch a Disney movie. One of the examples I always use is Cinderella and how the world that they create isn't necessarily based on anywhere, but it's based on lots of different, you know, there's bits that look like the French countryside and there's bits that look like the British countryside. And I was looking to create that sort of Disney magic within this world. And to be clear, I'm not saying I'm, I have made a a full-fledged $100 million Disney movie. That is just where those sort of inspirations came from. That's really beautiful. That's great. Yeah, I think so much of the story too, like we've spoken to Susanna Lane before and she's such a great writer. What was it like when you first met with her? Suzanne had wrote that book, what was it, 12 years before? So I think, you know, it was, I think one probably very exciting for both of us to realize that this might have a path somewhere. But I think she's been incredible at really letting a group, a company of people come in and sort of pull her world apart and put it back together. You know, it's it's one of the hardest things, I think, when you, I think, especially writing a novel, which is totally her world and her imagination. And then when us filmmakers come in, you know, we come in with a whole new set of ideas and a whole new set of traits. And she's been incredible. And I've always said this, like, I think Malcolm's List could be a miniseries. I think Mm -hmm. Malcolm's List could be a play. I'm sure Miss Lattimore's letter could be a number of those those things as well. And I just really hope that there's other filmmakers out there who are going to contact Suzanne and, you know, uh, make their own adaptations of what I think is a wonderful set of material set in this world. You know, we have how many adaptations of other, you know, books uh, in this space. So I, I really hope someone does their other version of Malcolm's List in the future. Absolutely. And that's something that we really appreciate about this is, you know, we're the Pemberley podcast. We're huge advocates of Jane Austen and Regency adaptations and it's been just so wonderful having something really fresh and really different with different characters to talk about. Mm. That being said, we're very curious, which character in Mr. Malcolm's List do you feel most similar to? Oh, I've never thought of that. Okay, let me think, because this is a really good question. If I'm going to be totally honest, it's Julia. Really? Why do you say that? 
because I'm so fiery and so controlling and so OCD, which I think are all wonderful qualities that make me an okay director. (laughs) But I think, you know, I think we all have to be honest about like, as women, I think we're all taught to be perfect and look a certain way and behave a certain way and do a certain thing. And I think one of the reasons I relate to Julia so much is she's actively, especially Zowie's version of Julia, she's actively pushing against the stereotype and pushing against the norm. I love a strong woman who's not scared to say what they think. And even though she goes on that, you know, rampage of a scheme, me and Zowie always used to say to each other, it's for the good of womankind. It was never (laughs) about Malcolm. Do you know what I mean? It was about Mm -hmm, getting one mm -hmm. up on like the nonsense of men. And so, yeah, I think that 100%, you don't become a female director without, you know, trying to break down a few walls. And I think that's exactly what Julia's doing. And I've always said, you know, on on paper, she might be a villain, but for me, she's our alternate hero. She's such a driving force. And she won in the end. She totally won. Oh, 100% as she should have. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) We just had to jump over a few hoops, you know, swim through a few lakes, go through a few bushes to get there. But don't we all? (laughs) Yep. So we cover a lot of, as we've mentioned, Jane Austen and Regency adaptations. Did any Jane Austen films inspire you for the visuals of this movie? So much so. As I said at the beginning of the conversation, the 90s rom-com was really the story inspiration for me and what I connected to so much in Suzanne's writing. But visually especially when the producers and I, you know, really stuck to this guns on casting the film this way. And I think once we had really sort of set that as the initial sort of birthing place of the visuals, it became very, very important to me that then rooting the cinematography, rooting the design in real sort of rustic, pastoral, natural colours and tones and cinematography. I never wanted this to feel poppy or too bright or too colourful. And actually, we spent a lot of time looking at paintings. Mm -hmm. It became really important to me that it never became gimmicky. And I think, you know, a huge part of that was setting a visual palette that felt like these characters were actually back in time in terms of colour, costume, sets, production design, music, sound design it was a real choice to go back to some of the greats um Hmm. in terms of design i mean i watched barry linden i think three times which is way too many times to watch barry linden in six weeks you know and i watched joe wright's pride and prejudice and angley's sense and sensibility i even re-watched the whole of downton abbey because i was looking to be inspired by something that felt really rooted in a visual truth Whereas I think some of the more modern adaptations have gone in a really sort of contemporary commercial look. I have nothing against that. It was just for this cast, I wanted to root them in this and make it feel timeless. In a nutshell, I always used to say to the production heads, I want to be able to pause it and it to feel like a painting. If you actually study the art of the time, it's all about clever pops of colour, right? Clever moments of action, whether it's smoke on a beautiful cottage in a huge landscape, or it's a red coat on a horse 
far, far in the distance. And the costume designer Pam and the production designer Ray really ran with this. So literally every shot you see in this movie was considered in terms of its color and how we put the elements together. And I think one of the best examples I can give is, you know, the shot at the beginning of the art gallery scene. It's got all those greens and browns. And then there's just the pink skirt and the pink ribbon. And that's Mm -hmm. a a completely contrasting opposing color to green. And that is taken from the artwork of the time. Those tiny pops of color that just, you know, your eye is drawn to. We really not only studied the real artwork from the time we studied a lot of those great great movies and i'm not here sitting here saying we accomplished what stanley kubrick accomplished or we accomplished what joe wright accomplished but it was a real joy for me to give it a go and see what I could do with my budget and my crew and my cast. And I'm super proud of that. You should be. I mean, to your point, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about just pausing any moment in the movie and seeing a painting. I mean, the first time I ever saw and really thought about that was the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And I think you did the same thing. And I think that's especially hard to capture when you're indoors, outdoors, like all these different angles, but it is very beautiful and and painting-like all throughout, so. Mission accomplished. That's the biggest compliment you could give me. So thank you very much. (laughs) Of course. Going back to Jane Austen a little bit, if you could direct any Jane Austen film adaptation, what would it be and why? I'm going to give you one guess. What do you think it is? Perhaps Emma. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely Emma. I don't know if you know this, but I'm named after Emma. So it was my mum's favourite book. So I would do it for my mum. Oh, that's really nice. I mean, we knew that because we have the press packet, but I love that you just <laughs> yeah. said that for all of our listeners here. <laughs> yeah, no, I was named after uh, Emma. I've had a copy of Emma on my bedside table from my mum that is still in, now in LA with me. If I was going to do one, I don't think I will, to be clear. Um, I think I've stretched my Regency shoes now. I, if it was one, it would 100% be for her. So we've also heard you mention that this was filmed in 27 days, which is incredible. Uh, what was your favorite part of making the movie? Oh my God, just watching the, the, that cast fall in love with each other. You really know you're in a good position with a movie when the actor's chemistry in all areas is just that electric. I mean, Chopin and Frida's chemistry was a true joy to watch across it they they just grew to respect each other so much Mm -hmm. they're both so professional and I think they really set a lovely tone as the two leads on this set and watching their characters sort of fall in love with each other and the chemistry those two actors were able to create was a real joy and then in the same sentence watching the banter between Zowie and Oliver Mm -hmm. like in real life and on screen is one of the funniest things I've ever you know witnessed and So it's very hard not to enjoy every single moment when one minute you're being brought to tears by how sweet two of them are being with each other as they dance and waltz through a room and the next moment you're roaring with laughter because Ollie and Zowie are doing a skit about Cassie and Julia pushing each other down the stairs in suits of armour. You know, honestly, like the banter between that cast and the comedic chops between that cast made it an utter joy, but also a fun one. So Frida and the end of the movie, that end scene was one of the last things we shot on the film. So it 
it was a really wonderful way to say goodbye to the world in a weird way that scheduling allowed our last day together, the wow. three of us, to be that scene. That's Tear so was shed in a bush. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> by a number of the crew, not just me. Lots of people were crying on that day. Uh, I totally so. believe it because when I was thinking like of all the moments that look especially painting-like and I was thinking of that last scene that will not be, we won't spoil here because people obviously have to go see the movie and we've seen it. We're still going with a big group of friends on Thursday because we just love this so much. I think that's all we have time for, but we've so loved getting to talk to you and getting to know you. I really hope you enjoy it on the big screen because I'm guessing you yes. saw it on the small screen. So yes. it really, even for me, I edited the entire film remotely with my amazing editor, Kate. So the first time I got to see it on the big screen was really special We're as well. Excited. So I really hope it's special <laughs> for you too. Thank you so much for the continued support. Of course. From day always. one, you're my day yes. oneers. So there <laughs> From you day go. one, that's, we've got t-shirts or we will. <laughs> I know. I feel like we should start some Malcolm's List merch. I'm going to leave that idea yes. with you guys. I feel like okay. you'd be the best at it. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get right. Thank you again to Emma Holly Jones for taking the time to talk with us. And I'm glad we were able to celebrate this movie with her. And, you know, we are now her day oneers, which is a very exciting feeling. I really do want to be like the merch monkeys on this. We can have <laughs> t-shirt. It's a term I just made up too. Okay. We're the merch monkeys. Um, just come up with Mr. Malcolm's list, day oneer merchandise. And exactly. we'll just wear it and be our own advertiser. <laughs> We'll be walking billboards for this movie. Billboards. And then I can't wait for people to not even stop us. They'll just be like, what's their deal? (laughs) As a reminder, go watch Mr. Malcolm's List in theaters this July 1st. You can also see our posts about this and pictures from our interview on our Instagram at The Pemberley. If you've got any comments, questions, concerns, anything you want to tell us about, you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. So stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming up. Thank you.